everyone, I'm Chanel, and the Bible reading tonight comes from Mark 1, verse 1 to 13. And I'm right, yep. So, um, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made out of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And at once the Spirit sent him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Microphone down. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. I'm Pastor Charlie. No, I'm not. Charlie is homesick. Um, I saw Charlie at the second service today, and he was not well. And he asked me if I could do tonight's talk. So I went home after the second service, which I was leading this morning, and then from about one o'clock till about six thirty tonight, I was writing this message. Normally I spend about 15 hours doing a sermon preparation, at least that, so today you get five. And the bad news is, normally when I go short like that with preparation, I tend to speak longer. Um, And then Charlie said to me, uh, let's show the video tonight from um, Right Now Media, which is the Bible Project. If you haven't seen it, I commend that to you. We'll show it next week because the guys didn't know about it tonight, so we're not showing it. So we said, look, we'll show that. goes for about 10, 12 minutes, then you'll only have to do a short sermon. I thought, oh, okay, good, that's fine. That works out, doesn't it? So no Charlie, no video, just me. And 13 verses of Mark. It's a great passage, and we're going to jump in. Another thing that can happen when I, have to, uh, when I prepare short like this is I can tend to speak too fast. But that's okay, because I'm supposed to be Charlie tonight anyway, and he speaks fast, doesn't he? <clears throat> so my name is not Charlie, my name is Daryl, for those of you who don't know me, and we're going to pray. Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the opportunity, for the privilege that we have, as your people, to gather together freely, to sing magnificent songs to you and about you, to participate in fellowship together and to contribute to the work of your kingdom through offerings and especially lord to hear your word what a privilege that is and then to sit under the teaching of it lord do your work take your word achieve your purposes magnify your son 
and draw us closer to him, I pray, in his name. And everybody said, tonight we are beginning a series on the Gospel of Mark, which is going to take us pretty much up to, not sure, Christmas, something like that, end of November, somewhere around about there, and then we'll start the Advent thing. And so we're spending a fair bit of time in our night services focusing upon it. So let me encourage you firstly to read through the Gospel of Mark. And I'll give you some very quickly background information to it tonight, and then we'll jump into this passage for us. Who is the author? Well, technically we, don't, we aren't told, but traditionally it's called Mark, and that would probably be John Mark, whom some of you may have heard of. He was a person who hung around with the Apostle Paul and failed and got sent back, wasn't taken again on a mission and then links up with the Apostle Peter and travels with Peter significantly for a number of years. And Mark's gospel is probably Peter's gospel. This is John Mark hanging around with the Apostle Peter and it's Mark listening to Peter tell the stories of hanging around with Jesus for those three years. Which explains why in Mark's gospel, of all of the four gospels, Peter is the one who is constantly brought down a peg or two, because it's Peter telling his own story. It's Peter telling these stories through John Mark. Um, It was John Mark, if he is the author, then he is the guy who owns a house, or his parents did in Jerusalem, which is where they held the Lord's Supper in the upper room. And there is a very strange reference, which we will come to eventually. I think it's in in Mark chapter 14. where Jesus is arrested and there was a young guy who goes out and he's just put on his like dressing gown and when he goes out somebody when they arrest Jesus they go to grab him and they grab the dressing gown and he runs off naked it's a young guy no name no identification Uh, but the guess is that that's actually John Mark giving a bit of a personal you know anecdote of saying I was there I was part of this story um Technically, we don't know, but that's where certainly most of us tend to land. So this is by Mark, um, from Peter, through Mark, I guess. And three things about it very quickly. It's the shortest gospel, so you can certainly read it in one, go- in one sitting. Let me encourage you to do that. Pick a version, a different version to what you normally read. If you normally read an IV, then just pick something different, just to get different language and to get a different feel, and you'll pick up some different flavors or themes or something in Mark, the language will strike you as different. So it's easy to read through. There's, um, Mark doesn't record a lot of the teaching of Jesus. He records a lot of the action of Jesus. And in fact, Mark's favorite word seems to be the word immediately. It doesn't come out all the time in the NIV, but if you go to the NASB or the ESV or a, a different version, you'll find the word immediately 41 times in the Gospel of Mark. It's only used 51 times in the whole New Testament. Mark uses it 41 times and a couple of times in this passage. The NIV changes it occasionally for English variety where it's saying, you know, and, and then or and at once or something like that. But in the Greek text, it's immediately, immediately. And it's like this rolling story that Mark has got going. It just flows, particularly in the earlier chapters. Someone has described the Gospel of Mark. I'm speaking fast, aren't I? someone has described the Gospel of Mark as an express train. And it's like an express train that is actually slowing down. Because in the earlier parts of the Gospel, as you read through those opening chapters, it covers like months in a very short period of time. And then he starts to focus on weeks and then days and then 
hours. And it comes to an ultimate stop. And we'll come to this at the end of Mark. There's a disputed ending, a shorter ending, a longer ending, and all of that stuff. But you end up, if you accept a longer ending, then you end up on a hill outside the city of Jerusalem at a halt, where Jesus has been resurrected and he's about to ascend into heaven. And you are there as the disciple, a follower of Jesus. Mark, different to Matthew uh, and Luke and John, Mark begins his gospel. Where does this story about Jesus begin? And Mark says it begins with his forerunner, his messenger, uh, John the Baptist. Um, And we're going to jump into that in a minute. Matthew says, and probably we don't know the order, but this is a pretty good guess. Matthew wrote, uh, Mark wrote his first, then Matthew writes his, and Matthew writes for the Jews particularly, and just, anyway, that's beside the point, and Mark says, um, begins with John, and Matthew says, no, 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 it begins with all the way back to Abraham and David, Jesus the Messiah is the descendant, he's a king, he's a descendant of David through Abraham, and so you get the genealogy from Abraham going forward. When Luke, who probably wrote after that, He says, no, 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 no. Jesus was a full man. He was an ordinary man, but he was the son of God who became a full human man. And so it goes all the way back to Adam, and his genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. And John, who writes his gospel last, he says, "Mm mm-mm, goes way back before Adam. Jesus is the eternal word. He's the eternal son of God. It goes back to eternity past, and John writes his gospel so that we may discover the truth about him in salvation and have eternal life. So the Gospels have a different focus, a different emphasis. And one of the things, let me plead with you to do, is that when you read Mark, read Mark. When you read Matthew, read Matthew. Listen to what they are saying. They tell some stories, not many, but they tell some stories, similar stories, like the feeding of the 5,000. They all have that in it. And if you read them, they'll be slightly different And there are some annoying people who go around trying to collate that, put that together of, you know, a harmony of the Gospels. God wrote these four Gospels because he wanted these four different messages to go out. You need to listen to Mark. Not Matthew, not Luke, not John. It is helpful in terms of studying uh, to listen to these guys in terms of comparing them. Well, why does Mark say that but doesn't say that? What's the point of this? Why is the emphasis? And we'll come to an example of that tonight. Um, so let me plead with you to listen to the author. It's the Holy Spirit speaking through these human authors. Listen to Mark and hear what he is saying and his emphasis and the order that he puts things in, which could be different to Matthew and different to Luke, certainly different to John again. So Mark is the shortest gospel. It's probably the earliest gospel. That's a guess. That's the best guess. And it's certainly, as I think I've indicated, the liveliest gospel. It's full of action. Matthew will take out five large chunks where he'll have collections of the sayings of Jesus in five large groupings, just like the five books of Moses, because it's written to the Jews. And Luke will have an emphasis upon Jesus and his works, and particularly to different segments of society, women and Gentiles and lepers and outcasts, because and, he's the son of man, the servant of all. So they all have a different emphasis, and Mark 
probably was written to the Romans, and the Romans were not really into words and mysteries and all of that stuff. What they really wanted was something practical, something filled with action and drama. And so Mark writes his gospel, probably in the city of Rome. To communicate the truth of who Jesus was to Romans, to that particular segment of society. The gospel is not a biography. You often hear that. Um, It talks about the last three years of Jesus' life, of his 30, 33-year life. So it's not a biography of his life. There's a message that comes through it. And Mark tells us, in fact, what it is, the beginning of the gospel. That's what it is. That's the sort of literature. It's a gospel literature. Gospel means good news, we know. But gospel also means this particular type of literature. I want to come back to that in a second. Let me give you this assignment. When I was in theological college, back just after John the Baptist, one of the assignments that I was given was to read through, particularly the Gospel of Mark, and to listen to Mark, and in the process, to write out um, a heading. So you have a passage, a reference, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, a title, and then who said it. Just those three columns. What's the reference? So Mark chapter 1, verse 1. What's the title? What is Jesus called? In the Gospel of Mark. Let me encourage you to do this. You'll end up with a couple of pages of notes. There's lots of titles of Jesus in this Gospel. And to note next to it, who said it? So in Mark chapter 1, first reference, Jesus is called Jesus. He's called the Christ, the Messiah. And he's called Son of God. Who said that? Mark, the author. So you write Mark there. When you get to by John... uh, John. But when you get to Mark, Mark chapter 15... It'll say, um, Mark 15, probably, I think, verse 36, doesn't matter. Um, What is the title? Son of God. Who says it? The Roman centurion. At the foot of the cross. So do that. Let me encourage you to do that. And you'll come up with all different sorts of reference. And then you go through and collate it. Who calls Jesus the Son of God in the Gospel of Mark? Well, Mark does. The Roman centurion does. So do the demons. And... Perhaps some others as well. So there's an exercise for you to do to read through the Gospel of Mark. um, And I encourage you to do that. What sort of literature is this? Well, it's a Gospel. Scholars are continuing to debate about this and write articles about it. And I have a very simplistic approach. I just think Mark is using a word that the angel used when he came to the shepherds in the field. What did he say? Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. I bring you the gospel of great joy. That word, that language is the same word that Mark is using. And when he writes this, because he's writing to the Romans, it also links in with a cultural use of the word gospel. The word was particularly used for the Roman emperors. And it was um, Rome and its kingdom and its empire was often at war. And the emperor would be waiting to hear news of the outcome of the battle or the war. And so while you're waiting for the news, if the the battle is won, if you're the victor, then the messenger would be dispatched. And when he arrived, he would run through the streets of Rome shouting out, Gospel, Gospel, which meant victory. The battle is over. We have won. And now peace is is the result. It's that sort of word that Mark is using here, right at the beginning when he says, this is the gospel. This is the declaration, the announcement that victory has happened. There has been a battle and that Jesus has won. This is the gospel 
the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, who Mark says is the Christ, the King, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one who was promised and predicted by God to come. And he's not just human, he is the Son of God. He is God the Son. God has entered into our world and he has entered into the battle. Who is this battle between? Well, in reading through Mark, you might come to a conclusion that maybe it's between Jesus and the Jews. There's an element of that. Maybe it's between good and evil and good wins. But ultimately, the battle is between God and Satan. There is this spiritual battle going on. Where does it take place? Who embraces, who enters the field for us? This man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's who this gospel is about. And Mark will develop through his gospel that joint theme. That Jesus is the King, the promised one. He is the Messiah, the Christ. And he is the Son of God. Both of those he will develop for us. So now let's look at where Mark begins at this man, John the Baptist. And so I'm going to look at the man, his mission and his message through this passage. Let's see how we go. Uh, Verse 2 says, As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. This man, John, it says in verse 4, the baptizer, appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Where did he live? In the wilderness. We live in a reasonably comfortable location and certainly in a nice part of the world, but not him. He lived in a terrible, shocking place. He lived in Death Valley. He lived in the wilderness, an area of land marked, you know, between the Dead Sea and the Judean hills and sloped down towards it. And it was in the rain shadow, so it didn't get a lot of rain. There's not a lot of grass there. It's just a lot of dead stuff, wild animals and it's wilderness. And that's where he is. Um... Becoming, he had, becoming God's person, it's where God directed him to be. He lived on his food, we are told, is locusts and wild honey, raw honey. So he's got protein and carbohydrates in his diet, that's nice. And he's got some strange clothes, they're not very decent clothes. He's clothed with camel's hair, garments, you know, chopped up and shaped and so on, like a mountain man or something. Uh, but they are significant clothes, as we'll come to in a moment. And he was incredibly successful, strange looking, in a weird place. But verse 5 says, And the people from the whole Judean countryside and all of the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. He was highly successful. Why was he highly successful? You know, hundreds, thousands of people are streaming out to him. Why? Well, because he is both, Mark has indicated, both the fulfilment of prophecy, but he's also the revival of prophecy in Judea. He's the fulfilment of prophecy, as I read verses 2 and 3. Mark says it's Isaiah who says it. This is quite common in the first century, and they'll, they'll take a couple of different authors and take quotes from different books and put them together, and then they'll say the most important one or the biggest one said this. So Isaiah is what he's quoting, but he's also partly quoting Malachi and he's also got a flash off to Exodus. That's, you know, 
detail that you don't have to worry about. But ultimately, this guy was predicted, promised by God. God said, before I come, before the Messiah, the king is sent, I'll send somebody else, a messenger ahead of him to prepare the way. Isaiah said it 600 years before Jesus. And then Malachi, a couple hundred years later, 400 years before Jesus, says the same thing. When this guy comes, he will clean you up. He'll get you ready. And this is fulfilled in this person, John the Baptist. He is the voice of one calling out, crying out in the wilderness to get ready. He came to make a road, a way, for the people of God then to receive the coming king who was to come. Just like in our world, if Queen Elizabeth was to come and visit us, we'd be preparing the way. We see it more readily perhaps in movies with the President of the United States, but I'm sure it's the same with the Queen. That when she comes, you know, traffic is shut down, the roads are empty, so that the, what is it called? The cavalcade of whatever it is, of cars can just go to their destination where they're going. Potholes are filled in, roads are graffiti's cleaned off. Everything is prepared and cleaned for the coming of the royal person. That's what John's doing. He's preparing the way. And he's preparing the way for the coming of the king in two particular ways, which we'll come to in just a second. This John is a remarkable individual because as gifted and as great as he was, he's also a pretty humble person because he plays second fiddle to someone else. It's not parading himself. He's talking about there's someone coming after me and you need him. I'm just here to prepare the way. So John is the fulfillment of prophecy, but he is also the revival of prophecy. For 400 years, the people of Israel had not heard from God. Malachi was the last prophet four centuries ago. Twelve generations have come and gone where Parents told their children, if God promised us the Messiah would come and a messenger before him who would prepare us and cleanse us and prepare us for the coming of the king, the conquering one. Twelve generations of parents telling their children and their children growing up and getting married and telling their children and their children growing up and getting married and telling their children. Twelve generations. And finally, John comes. And after 400 years, there's finally somebody here who says, thus says the Lord. This is what God says. He's a prophet. He is the revival of this means of communication in the ancient world. And God was speaking through him. No wonder people went out to hear him and to respond to him. And when they got there to see him, what did they see? They saw a man who was wearing camel's fur clothes and a leather belt. And if you know your Old Testament, and if you're a Jewish person, you would, that's exactly the garment that Elijah the prophet war he's dressed like Elijah and Malachi in the last prophet actually says that before the coming of the king Elijah will come so God had predicted prepared all of this thing and John is simply acting in obedience to it the people were responding and they were joyful I'm quite sure with God is speaking again let's go and hear what he is saying and people would have thought that John at some point was actually the messiah And they asked him the question. Different gospel. Mark doesn't go into that. So that's the man, John the Baptist. And he comes. Well, what's his mission? Verse 4 tells us what his mission is. He appeared in the wilderness preaching, proclaiming a baptism of repentance 
for the forgiveness of sins. A couple of quick, three things, I guess, quickly. God always works through his word, preaching, declaring God's truth. That's how God works. And it's the same now. God continues to work through us, sharing the truth of the gospel with others. So that's certainly how God was working here. John came preaching and preaching that people needed to repent and be baptised. They needed to receive the forgiveness of sins and to show that in the waters or the public act of baptism. Um, Because this is our greatest need, isn't it? It's not our greatest need. It's not food. It's not freedom in our minds. It's as essential as those things are. Our greatest need, our basic need, is forgiveness of our sins, to be made right with God. And that's what John came declaring. And there's no other way to get this except through Jesus, through the gospel. John said, you need to repent and you need to be baptised. Repentance is not at the emotional level. It can involve it. It's not remorse and it's not regret. Repentance is more in the mind. The word literally means to change your mind. This is wrong. But it flows then into your will. I will stop doing that. Repentance is a change of mind which leads to a change of life, a change of behaviour, a change of direction. That's repentance. And John came telling God's people, the Jewish people, you need to repent. You need to change your mind about sin. Whether you feel like it or not, often these feelings are coupled with it, that we feel bad about what we're doing. But technically, it's got not much to do with emotion. It's got everything to do with your mind and with your will, your choices. Repent. And show that you have repented, receive forgiveness of sins, by being baptised. Now, this is amazing. Nobody baptised Jews up until this point. Gentiles got baptised because Gentiles were unclean. Gentiles were those who were estranged from God. Gentiles were those who needed God's forgiveness. But the Jewish people were God's people, chosen by God. We've been circumcised, we've been dedicated, we've been trained and equipped and we have the traditions and we are the accepted ones. And John came telling them, you need to repent and you need to be baptised. You're just like the Gentiles. It's an amazing, confrontive message to them. You need to get your hearts and lives right for the coming of the Mighty One, the coming of the King. And so that's why they called him this nickname. Sort of doesn't come out too much in the English, but he's John the Baptizer. He's John the Dipper. John the Plunger. Uh, Whatever word you want, it's that being plunged under, drenched completely from head to toe, cleansed. It's an outward physical demonstration of something that's happened inward. It's certainly physical, but it's demonstrating a spiritual reality of what's gone on for you. And so then, surprisingly, hundreds, thousands of people went, confessed their sins, John baptised them. And then one day, one afternoon, Jesus himself came from Nazareth up in the north and came down to this wilderness area to the Jordan River and went to John the Baptist, his cousin, and said to him, baptise me. 
Jesus is without sin. But Jesus is both endorsing the ministry of John the Baptist, but he's also identifying with his people, with sinners. That's why he was baptised. And so eventually John agrees and John baptises him. So that's his mission. came preaching, repent and be baptised for the forgiveness of sins. And then finally, what is his message? Well, that comes out in verses 7 to 8. Um, he, his message was, there is one coming after me who's more powerful than what I am. I'm not worthy to stoop down and even to untie, you know, the thongs off his sandals, the straps. I have baptised you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. Someone greater than me is coming. His message was, I am the preparer. Someone else is coming and he is the one you need. He is the one who will make all of the difference for you. And he, a humble guy, he says that I am not worthy to untie the straps off even the sandals of the one who is coming. Cultural reference, in that ancient world, the slaves have like a pecking order, probably by age. But the second worst job to have was to actually undo the shoelaces, undo the straps of the sandals of the people. That's the second worst job. What was the lowest one? Washing the feet. Wow. Remember Jesus washed their feet? And John the Baptist is saying, I am not worthy to occupy that lowest rung of slave to even undo his shoelaces. He is so powerful and so mighty, far superior to what I am. So John is humbling himself. Um, and then he says <clears throat> that this one who is coming is not any more powerful than I. He will baptise you. I baptise you in water. He will baptise you in the Holy Spirit. You need him to empower you. He is the one. You need the one who is coming after me and you need the one who is coming after him. You need both. You need Jesus and his spirit. And Jesus is the one who will baptise you in the spirit, which means he is the one who will impart the spirit to you, empower you with his spirit. John is saying, I can help you to a certain point, but you need Jesus. So Jesus came, he was baptised, and then it says in verse 10, and just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, immediately as he came out of the water, he saw the heavens part. So it must have been a cloudy day, excuse me, it must have been a cloudy day, and so the clouds part and there is this sudden blue sky, and out of the middle of the blue sky this dove descends, is how I imagined it. And it says, uh, and the spirit descended on him like a dove. And then there was a voice from heaven that says, you are my son. It's spoken to Jesus. You are my son. See, this is one of those interesting things. You go and compare Mark and Luke. It's not you are my son. The voice from heaven says, this is my son. What's the difference? You are my son. This is my son. You are my son is spoken to Jesus. This is my son is spoken to somebody else. 
So the gospel writers are emphasising something slightly different. I didn't get a chance to follow this through, but the question is, who saw the dove and who heard the voice? At least Jesus and John. We know that. We don't know if anybody else did. But Mark tells us this personal um, response. You are my son, the beloved one. With you, I am well pleased. There is a vision. They see something. There is a voice. And then following on from that, Jesus is immediately driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and angels ministered to him. The vision, clouds parting, Spirit of God descending. And it's not the Spirit of God which is common in our world to mean a symbol of peace. It's the Spirit of God from Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of power, the one who brings order to chaos. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, Spirit of God hovering over the earth and the waters. It's that powerful Spirit who is descending upon Jesus. And it's after this reception, this baptism in the Spirit, that Jesus then commences his public ministry of power and of miracles and of teaching and so on. It's that same Spirit that was on Jesus that we have, which is why Jesus can also say, the works that I do, greater works than these you will do, not in their own strength, but by his Spirit. So there's a vision, there's this voice. There's a very subtle distinction here. It's worth pointing out. Um, it's the father speaking and he quotes both the Psalms and he quotes Isaiah and he brings these two things together and he says you are my beloved son in Psalm 2 that's a reference to the king you are my beloved son the sovereign and then he says with you I am well pleased and that's a quote from Isaiah 42 and that's about the servant the sovereign one and the servant together in the person of Jesus. He is the supreme one and he is the lowest one. He's king of kings and he's lord of lords. Uh, king of kings and servant of servants. That's what I wanted to say. He's for every social strata and level of society. He is the way, the truth and the life. All of this is combined in the Lord Jesus. He is the one who can wash feet. And he's the one who can wear the crown. And then finally, there is this battle scene. Mark doesn't give us much detail at all. He gives a slightly different emphasis than Mark and than Matthew and Luke. The Spirit of God immediately drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, just like Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. He was tempted and or tested by a spiritual opponent, Satan. He was with the wild beasts. We're not told if the wild beasts were vicious towards him or if the wild beasts were passive and peaceful towards him. Is it a picture where the beast and Satan are opposing him in this wilderness? Or is it a picture where Satan is opposing him, but here is Jesus, the creator, the king of kings, and with the beasts not harming him? Uh, future picture of a future peaceful world that will come that the prophets predicted mark just gives us the reference doesn't amplify it for us and then it beautifully says and the angels waited on him there is a natural realm and there is a supernatural realm a spiritual realm physical and spiritual and jesus is the link 
between these two worlds. He is the one who came from the spirit world, if you like, into our physical world to do battle for us, to fight this war. The battle has begun. Round one. And Jesus is the victor. The gospel. Victory. There has been a battle and we have won. This is the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the King, the Son of God. And finally, before I pray, let me just point out to you too, what happened to Jesus often happens for us. That you go from being on a spiritual high, a voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am very well pleased, and a close encounter, an affirmation of your relationship with the living God, and then led into spiritual tests, spiritual battle. That's very common. Mountain peaks and valleys. We go up and we go down in this life. It's part of the journey. But something for us to note and to be aware of that the Lord Jesus has gone before us. So the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And in this passage we've spoken about the forerunner, the messenger, the man, his message and his mission. Let me commend the gospel of Mark to you and for you to read it through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our Saviour, for the Lord Jesus, for the one who came to do battle for us, who's defeated our enemy, who has made it possible for us to receive forgiveness of sins as we repent, who invites us to show that and declare that publicly through baptism and through our own life, through sanctification. Lord Jesus, you're the king. We ask that you would rule and reign in us. And Lord Jesus, you have set a model for us to be a servant. Help us to serve, serve you, to serve one another, and to serve you all in purposes in this world. We pray in your name and for your sake. Amen.